0: I'm Alistair Funge, space policy and operations engineer.
1: I'm Robbie Boundy, founder of Space Impulse.
0: I'm Aaron Burnett, a co-founder of Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project.
1: One of the common features that I have when I talk to founders early on is I ask, what the exit strat- what, what is your exit strategy? And I get looked at. Like I have three hits, right? What do you mean exit strategy? I'm just starting. Well, if you don't know how you plan to exit, then what's the point of starting? Like, what is the point of your company?
0: Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Kanigan, the founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science and process improvement firm. That means we help make good companies better. I'm here with Dominic Battistella. He is... Well, he's a number of things he's New York life insurance don't hold that against him Uh, licensed agent and financial services professional, there is a reason space industry founders that I want him on. Um, He's also lead community organizer and sponsor at something called 1 Million Cups in the Research Triangle Park area here in North Carolina. He's not too far away from me. So I may get a chance to visit with you in person someday. He's also a chef, so cool dude. Um, I was having a sort of meet and greet talk with Dominic here and uh, it immediately like sort of the wet fish slap across the face (laughs) sort of thing. I gotta have him on because what we were talking about were issues for startup founders and insurance and, and business organization I, that I have not really uh, come across anybody. I know lawyers, I know accountants, they'll tell you certain things, you're just how to do, your operating agreement, et cetera. But as far as like insurance and risk management, I got nothing. <laughs> so we, we started to dig into this uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and I said, well, hold on a second, Dominic, let's book a, a podcast, show recording. Um, we'll record our Q&A. And, you know, then we don't have to do everything twice and we'll be able to share this out to the world. So thanks for being here, Dominic.
1: Hey, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it, Jason.
0: You bet. So no problem with, well, at least those who are viewing. If you're listening to the audio only, Dominic's got a nice Zoom background with all of his contact info. (laughs) So I'll drop that into the uh, description anyway. Let's begin with this. the, the real reason, again, that, that I wanted you on was we were talking about primary insurance and risk management concerns for founders, and we've got a lot of space startup founders running around uh, with ideas, and they're just starting to sort of get maybe some funding in that and get started. What do they need to be thinking about?
1: Well there's a number of different things when it comes to uh, insurance and risk management that uh, you know, startup founders and space, space startup founders specifically are going to need to uh, think about. Uh, there's the obvious ones which is uh, you know general liability if you've got employees workers comp insurance uh, the general liability is going to cover you know if anybody um, becomes injured or has some uh, some sort of mishap on your business's property. The workers' comp is going to deal with uh, ensuring your employees against injury while they're on the job. Those are those are common. Most people know about those. Uh, but then there are some that get into you know, more specialized um, concerns, especially when it comes to startups. Now, I'm going to talk really in as far as these go in general concepts as how do they apply to startup companies. Uh, my primary Market in the Research Triangle Park is working in high technology industries, so space would uh, would apply in those. But primarily, you know, I'm focusing on things, you know, things like um, information technology companies, uh, potentially SaaS companies, software companies, uh, medical device manufacturing, pharmaceutical, and, and biotechnology. Uh, and when I deal with those companies. There's two areas that um, that companies re- really come into the insurance space that they don't know about. Uh, one is key person coverage, and the other one is directors and officers coverage, uh, what is uh, customarily known as D&O. And we'll talk about those a little bit more. But the reason those two are important is because when you start getting into uh, series rounds of funding, when you're raising capital from venture funds, those contracts, those term sheets are generally going to require both DNO coverage and key person coverage, the key person covering the founder of the company, and sometimes uh, persons who are responsible or primarily responsible for the development of product or uh, intellectual property. Uh, And then the Directors and officers, the DNO coverage is going to cover the liability for the board of directors. Hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, then, so uh, mm-hmm.
1: I was just going to say then. Then there's a couple of other things you know that 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 uh, businesses need to think of as they're starting up, which you know I talk about early on, exit strategies. Uh, insurance for employee benefits and employee retention, which we can, we can talk a little bit about later, but those two are the, are the big ones early on, especially, you know, for companies that are looking for investment.
0: Okay. Let's talk about key person first, because that is something that founders probably are not thinking about uh, when they're, when they're so involved in their idea and the energy and that founder fuel and all that, you Yeah, know. sure. and then, Oh, Hey, I've got some funding. I've got a warehouse with an office attached to it. We're starting to build something in here. I'm gonna, I, I'm not gonna be there every day, right? Somebody needs to come and go in that. What does that mean? Why should startup companies focus on this?
1: Well, okay, so key person coverage is, is, is a concept, okay? So it's covered by two different types of insurance product. There's life insurance. And disability insurance. Now, I'm going to speak primarily primarily to the life insurance side, since disability is more for uh, a company where a a founder or an owner is a primary worker, like pr- doing production. So that would be more in. Um, you know, mom and pop, or like, imagine a restaurant or something like that, where the owner is also an operator, right? Uh, but when it comes to startup companies that are that are trying to raise, uh, raise investment funds, um, the, the downside risk of the death of a founder is pretty significant. So when you're talking about a company that's trying to get anywhere from one to $10 million in, in, in investment, Uh, That's a significant amount of investment for most funds. And in a world where life insurance exists, the death of the founder shouldn't be a downside risk that that fund has to take. So, yes, they're going to require life insurance, uh, typically in uh, the ownership of the company. And with the company being the beneficiary of the ownership, basically to reimburse the venture fund as the primary shareholder at that point, or at least uh, the primary investor, um, the value of their investment. So that benefit would become a, um, it, it becomes an asset of the company, right? It's because life insurance death benefits are technically an asset. And it's transferable. So if something were to happen to the founder, then there is a massive payout to the company and that cash amount that is, by the way, not taxable uh, becomes a part of the value of the company. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So okay. in, in, in essence, it would reimburse the investors for you know w- what they put into the company. And why would they want to do that? Because usually the founder of the company is the driving force behind whatever the value of the company is, right? So investors aren't necessarily looking at, at your company saying, uh, you know, there, there's a product eventually or something, they may be looking at a piece of intellectual property and saying, you know, your company has a valuation of X based upon this. But usually it's the faith in the team and the founder of the company that they're going to bring that idea to fruition. And it's going to become successful because of the efforts that this primary person is putting into the company and if that person were to go away the likelihood of success of the company significantly decreases so they want to protect for that now the other thing that a key person policy in a startup space is going to cover is a a critical person other than the founder so if if um you know say in the um in the pharmaceutical space, in 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 uh, RTP, there's a lot of you know r- primary researchers. You may have the CEO of the company, but the primary research and in the intellectual property is being developed by one or two primary researchers. If that person, or you know, the person that's coding, you know, some uh, some piece of software or something like that, if they become lost, then you lose time you lose you know potential knowledge of the therapeutic or the software that's being developed and that's the likelihood of success becomes significantly lower so you want to make sure that that person is covered as well uh there in in certain industries you know where you're developing a a market um and in the space industry as i know jason you and i have spoken it's 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 a very small and insular industry and if you have somebody in a start uh, a startup who has the relationships in that industry those relationships may have value too. So if you lose that person, then your company loses significant value. So that person may want to be covered as well. Does that make sense?
0: Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I just thought of something. Are, are, are founders doing crazy things like taking that asset and the benefits payout and leveraging that? Or do they normally leave it alone?
1: Well, there's, there's nothing really to leverage, right? The only way that that asset ever pays out is if the founder nice mm-hmm. right so the founder is not going to be able to do anything with it in that particular case uh it it only becomes it, it becomes an asset when you know, when it pays out right mm-hmm. so there's not something it's not something that you can leverage against mm-hmm. uh now it is something that you can utilize as part of as as part of something that you could leverage now uh, a, a um such as purchasing property right you can do a collateral assignment of a particular life insurance policy if you were going to purchase property with the idea that, you know, if I died and was not able to pay a, a mortgage on a property, then the death benefit of that life insurance policy could cover a part of that mortgage, particularly on commercial property. Uh, But you wouldn't be able to double dip in this case because you do have a contract that requires that payment be made to the company, which means that the company has a primary collateral assignment on that benefit. And usually the way I set these things up is if you uh, you do have a requirement in your term sheet for there to be uh, key person coverage to cover the investment, then we're going to get paperwork to create that collateral assignment as part of the benefit. So that, that um, so that that requirement is paid first. And then the balance of whatever benefit does go to the bottom line of the company. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: great. Um, what about like product or intellectual property development? Can anything be done about that? With insurance, or, or the people who are coming up with that.
1: So, yes, the the idea is that you determine what the value is of that individual. What is the what is the opportunity cost to losing that individual? Okay, so if you have somebody, is that person completely irreplaceable, and what is the value of the property that they're the intellectual property that they're creating? is there somebody else that could step into that role and what would be the cost to hire a, that person and the time that it would take to you know, step in and continue to develop that, that technology or that intellectual property? And what is the cost associated with, with losing that one person? Once you determine that, then you create an insurance policy to cover that individual that's going to replace, going to be able to, um, you know, replace whatever would be lost by losing that individual. Does
0: that make sense? Is that commonplace or is that something that, uh, VCs will say, Hey, you've got to have this.
1: It's, it's not always commonplace because it's actually, um, it's not often that VCs are actually investing in a company that is developing intellectual property, right? Typically, there's some intellectual property, and then you're trying to go to market, right? Uh, it, if VCs aren't getting involved at in that early early stage of the development of IP. Typically, but if you are looking at a development of IP and going, okay, uh, what could that potentially be worth if we develop that you may want to, you know, absent the requirement of a VC firm, uh, you know, in a term sheet or something like that requiring key person, you may want to buy that key person on your own understanding that, all right, we were going to develop this. If we lose this person, at least I want to, you know, know that the company has, has created some
0: value. This, this will feed into the next sort of big topic area, but like, when should founders talk or think about approaching you or somebody like you, when do they do it? And and when should they do it? Well,
1: I would do it early on. Okay. Uh, There's, now, oftentimes, I get approached by founders or uh, their attorneys who are working with them at the point where um, a, a fund is requiring them to get a key person policy. However, you know, I've run across times when an individual has not been able to qualify for insurance; they're uninsurable, so that becomes problematic. We have to find other ways to to deal with that downside risk Uh, and, you know, that's, that's an issue. So uh, I would say the earlier, the better, but you don't know what your company could potentially get an investment for, right? So, so trying to project out, you know, what you're going to have to cover for a uh, for an investment requirement, It's probably not something that you can do even early on. But what you can do is look at, all right, where do most people get their primary investment when they start a company? They're either self-funding or they're asking people that they know to invest small amounts of capital, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, In that case, you may want to have those things covered. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if you've taken a, a large chunk of your life savings and you put it into a company that you, you are hoping is going to be uber successful at some point, but you pass away, what does that mean for your family or the people that you've left behind? Maybe you want to have that covered and replaced. And, and, and at that point, you'll also understand whether or not you're liable to, be, to qualify for life insurance in the future because you'll already have gone through the underwriting process.
0: Makes sense. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's touch on uh, D and O. D okay. like dog. Uh, okay. What does that mean? Right. You know, what does it cover? Let's, let's sure. lay that out.
1: So that's directors and officers insurance. So like I mentioned earlier, that's covering your liability for the board of directors. Why do uh, do funds focus on that? Well, because usually somebody from the fund is going to sit on the board of directors for one of their portfolio companies. So they want to make sure that their backside is covered if the company does something that can get them sued. So what are things that the board of directors needs to be covered for? Well, one is the, 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 the board's liability in and of itself. So what do we mean by that? Well, there's some examples, due diligence. So imagine, you know, you own a, you're you're the board, you sit on the board of directors, you own a piece of commercial property and you decide you wanna sell that piece of property. You sell it to a company who then turns around and resells it for a significant profit, okay? So your investors may look at the board of directors and go, why did you make that decision to sell that piece of commercial property you didn't do your due diligence to see what the the fair market value is and we're going to sue you as the board of directors for what we lost in that potential asset does that make sense so that's that's due diligence uh competitor disputes could be something else let's say you hire um, you hire an employee from another firm and they come over and start making suggestions that are potential trade secrets that they took from their previous company. You as the board of directors at the company be, get sued by your competitor for violating those, those trade secret uh, requirements, right? So that's, that's another place. Another would be just general shareholder claims mismanagement of the company itself that's always gonna to fall to the board. And that's that's what the uh, the DNO liability in and of itself covers. And then you have fiduciary fiduciary liability. So what does that mean as opposed to uh, directors and officers liability? So uh, as a fiduciary, so as a member of the board of directors of a company, you have certain things that, you, that you're required to um be financially responsible for. And I'm not just talking about like the value of the company. I'm talking about, uh, let's say, uh, employees' retirement plans or their healthcare information. So we're talking about HIPAA, we're talking about ERISA, we're talking about, um, you know, if, uh, well, uh, failure to enroll is an example. Uh, so let's say an employee has and has paid for and has uh, disability insurance through the company. And they have deductions being taken out of their, out of their uh, paycheck. And they make a claim against the disability insurance and then they find out they were never actually enrolled but they're having withholdings being taken out there's a potential suit against the uh against the board for fiduciary liability and then of course uh irx irs uh issues so you know making sure that your employees payroll taxes are paid or at least your portion right where is their withholding going making sure that that's taken care of that's another example of fiduciary liability and then employment practices liability is the third area where uh, DNO insurance um, protects the board from liability. So you're talking about discrimination cases, retaliation, you know, wrongful discipline, workplace harassment being examples of employment practices liability because you know, even if it's not a member of the board of directors who's actually doing say the harassment if those issues aren't addressed properly or to the satisfaction of the employee, there's uh, any number of uh, litigious attorneys out there who you know, are, are going to take cases like that. And they're, yes, they're gonna name the manager responsible, but they're also gonna name the board of directors. And that uh, employment practices liability is something that covers that. Um, Another thing, you know, right now that is, is interesting uh, is COVID claims. Hmm. Right. If if you have uh, an employee who who catches COVID while working and you know that, that could come back to the board as well. There's actually right now it's becoming a bit harder to get DNO insurance. Hmm. Um, because of the COVID environment, because there's increased risks. So uh, if you don't already have DNO insurance, it's much harder to get covered for the first time. So if you're looking for, um, if you you anticipate getting venture capital at some point in the future, it might be time to start looking for that now. Now that's not something, I'm not a, a, I'm not a, business um, liability insurance agent. I do work with a number of partners who are experts in that. I don't claim to be an expert in that, but I've seen enough of my partners work through this to know, understand that there's, you know, those are some of the concerns that they're gonna be addressing. But I will say it, it's it's taking longer right now to get O placed than it has in the past because of this environment. So if you're thinking, we're going to get venture capital, start talking about the DNO before you need to start getting it.
0: Okay, very, very if, important warning. Yeah,
1: because even if you're undercovered, at least if you have some mm. coverage, it's easier to get new coverage than if you haven't had it before.
0: Okay, wow. Um, so <laughs> you contrast this, folks, I know you're all full of sort of piss and vinegar and excitement as founders, right? You know, oh, everything's going to go great. We're going to bust for it. Wait, wait. <laughs> what Dominic's talking about here is sort of your sea anchor that you put out behind the ship that keeps you going in a straight line, right? Uh, you sure. know, we're, we're big on compliance here at Cold Start. It's a major function uh, that we help businesses with. And, you know, there's some of that here. Uh, I think this is super important. Uh, you know, the the founder fuel that causes the reality distortion field and the ability to push forward to success can also kind of make you push past some of this stuff and, uh, and you can get into trouble if you're missing it. So I've had business brokers on the show before. We're going to talk about exit strategies for a minute, uh, but I do want to hear about your perspective, Dominic, about what founders should be considering about exit strategies uh, from your perspective.
1: Well, I would say, first of all, have them. Right. Uh, it, one of the common features that I have when I talk to founders early, early on is I ask what the exit strat- what, what is your exit strategy? And I get looked at like I have three heads, right? What do you mean exit strategy? I'm just starting. Well, if you don't know how you plan to exit, then what's the point of starting? Like, what is the point of your company? Uh, and then I just typically have a brief conversation and I'll summarize it like this. You're gonna leave your company one of four ways either you're gonna leave successfully. And by that, I mean, you're gonna have an acquisition, you're gonna have an IPO, you're gonna transfer your company to bigger and greater things. And what are you gonna to do to strategize for for your future after that? Uh, you know, I liken it to the lottery winner syndrome, right? If somebody wins the lottery, they're not really prepared to, to for all of those um, newfound assets, and soon they end up broke because they don't have a plan for for what to do with those. Uh, second thing you have to prepare for is failure. Right, most businesses that start fail. All right, so have a plan for that to happen. Because if you don't, then you're doing ad hoc planning and you're ending up with worst case scenarios as opposed to having a plan for failure so that you can unwind the business in the most painless way possible. So that means having some cash reserves and things like that to be able to uh, satisfy debt, to be able to pay employees, those sorts of things, and to be able to wrap up so that you're not saddled with that failure for years to come third way you leave your company is retirement you're not going to do this for the rest of your life or hopefully you're not doing it for the rest of your life right uh the idea is that you can transfer your company potentially sell your company and you know right off into the sunset you're going to leave your company so how do you continue that business afterwards? How do you transfer that business from one owner to the other? And that's where your business brokers may come in if you have that kind of a lifestyle business. And, and you can also set this up early by having a ready purchaser, maybe a key employee that's ready to purchase it. And maybe you're setting them up with some kind of uh, employee, like an individual employee benefit that will help them purchase the company eventually. And then you already know you don't have to worry about getting a broker to, to get a purchaser for the company. You already have it and you've set that up. And then the last way that you're gonna leave your company is uh, you could die in your company, right? Um, and you know, we, we can't avoid that. Hopefully we retire before that or we have one of the other things happen. But if that does happen, and that happens often, do you have partners? Is there a buy-sell agreement in place? what does that mean to have a buy-sell arrangement? That's usually in the operating agreement. let's say you have you know, two partners, one partner will buy the other partner's shares at the event of that partner's death. That way they don't end up with say their spouse or their child as their new business partner uh, and the business can continue on. But what if you don't have a partner? What if there's other arrangements? How are you going to continue the business when the primary owner or one of the primary owners uh, prematurely dies? Okay, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a conversation that we have as well. And some of the key person insurance can transition into funding for the buy sell arrangements. And there's all sorts of concepts that we can talk about when it comes to that. But I'm not going to get I'm not going to get into the weeds on that because that's that that could literally be a whole nother podcast <laughs> so, right. are those concepts. But you know the idea is have a conversation and be at least thinking about all four of those ways that you could potentially leave your business because one of the four of them is going to happen eventually so have a plan that's that's you know if if there's if there's nothing else that your your audience gets today jason is is always have a plan for anything and Mm -hmm. because if you if you fail to plan you're leaving things up to chance. And Hmm. that's not something as a risk management expert that I like to do or leave my clients exposed in those sorts of ways.
0: Right. Yeah. All very important things. Um, You know, we've been involved in a number of business valuation um, processes, particularly in recording existing processes uh, at, at client companies because nothing was written down typically. And the founders we find... Uh, and then the business brokers I talk to and that overvalue their creation um, because they're in love with it and and why shouldn't you, right? Right, of course. I probably overvalue this thing because I'm in love with it, but I also know that's crazy, right? Um, Yeah. So, and then they get shocked when they get, you know, the the number of the valuation from the outside party and um, yeah, you can do things, again, planning for a successful uh, exit, like having your processes recorded uh, by A third-party professional like cold star and uh, that will raise the valuation of it typically it's not just about revenue because you can't it's a lot harder to pass along a business to a new owner uh, and and have them continue if nothing's written down and and there's always people leaving in that kind of situation uh who are unhappy in that so yes like dominic says have a plan and and that um, now you mentioned employee benefits what should should founders be considering? And at what point in time should they be considering these things?
1: Well, yeah, so I understand that founders, especially early on, they're working with minimal amounts of investment. They're trying to do everything on a, uh, you know, a shoestring budget, mostly. Uh, you know, um, So burn rate is extremely important when it comes to employee benefits. Uh, the people that are with you and the in that stage of the company, they're with you because they believe in you and they they believe you're going to be successful. But there's a certain point where you turn the corner and your growth hits the stage where you have to start hiring people that aren't the true believers, yeah. right? You you need you're, you need to start hiring people and paying them, and those people also have families that they need to take care of. So that's, that's typically the point in time where you need to start considering what employee benefits you're going to be putting in places is when you're starting to get into that competitive employment market, uh, particularly in high technology fields, uh, competition for the best and brightest is fierce. So if you don't have benefits, you're not going to be able to attract the people. If you don't have good benefits, they're going to leave you to go elsewhere. So, you know, at the point where you you are doing that hiring process, you want to have at least a basic level health insurance and uh, a group mm. health insurance, or you want to have a process for being able to help that employee pay for individual uh, health insurance. And that's a, that's a whole nother topic, but it depends, you know, these, these types of things depends on the individual circumstance that you as a business find yourself in. So I'm just getting like general ideas. Uh, so health, General life insurance, disability insurance are all options out there, and those are generally those are parts of larger companies' employee benefits packages. So is uh, retirement. So looking at four hundred one k's or other types of um, of employee uh, qualified investment uh, accounts. So you'd have to get those in place, but I understand with high technology, oftentimes your earliest employees are gonna be highly compensated people because you're pulling in you know, technical people that are going to be necessary to either get a product to market, complete a project, if you're hiring outside of contractors, right? So um, you're, you're going to have to do things that are maybe a little bit outside of the box when it comes to those employee benefits um, whether that be you know executive bonus arrangements a lot of people do stock grants um, which is significantly different from stock options you're you're literally giving people's uh, shares of stock uh, but I've seen a lot of startup companies that have paid people in that way and people that get involved in the startup industry that end up getting burned by companies that don't that ultimately don't become successful mm-hmm. right and shares of stock become pieces of paper at a certain point that is not compensation so if if there's ways that you can figure out how to create uh, potentially vested um, executive bonus or highly compensated employee bonus programs where it uh, like, such as a um, short-term deferred Deferred compensation program where you can keep an employee, uh, particularly an a critical employee in place so that they don't go to a competitor or leave and start up their own company and compete directly against you. Uh, You know, people generally don't leave money on the table. So if you have something like that in place, right, a, a vested bonus program that they get later after a certain number of times, say five or seven, 10 years, they're going to stay with your company for the long-term because they know there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And if you can lock that person in, you don't have to worry about replacing them. You don't have to worry about competing against them. They're going to be there. Okay. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Really, really important um, I, I would always rather give away bonuses than shares, right? Keep the ownership <laughs> yeah, well, for yourself sure. and, and give out performance bonuses. So I think well, that's a I great mean, idea. It, I
1: mean, you look at some of the larger companies out in, um, you know, uh, in Silicon Valley. So I, you know, I've, I've, I know some folks that say work at, um, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and the vast majority of their compensation on an annual basis is, is stock grants. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really interesting because that puts them in a huge bind in California. You're talking about employees Mm -hmm. with, uh, with a seven seven figure compensation, but three quarters of that Mm -hmm. is in stock grants that they can't touch for a year or more. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about living in one of the highest tax states in the entire country. And, you know, that on top of, uh, you know, their federal, their, their actual cash take home is less than their tax bill. And right. that creates a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I've never been in a situation where mm-hmm. I've gotten paid and that kind of stuff, but that, that's gotta be somewhat difficult.
0: Right. I, I will remind people of something Dominic said, some time ago in this interview most companies do not become successful <laughs> yes that's true <laughs> it's a it's wonderful to have enthusiasm for that but to bank on it um you know you sure. be I, sure, right?
1: I like to bank on greenbacks. <laughs> right
0: right well let's finish up with this dominic i want i want to touch with the one million cups idea how did sure. you find yourself uh you know doing this with new york life and and uh you know in the rtp area you're right sure. in between two places that I like to go back and forth between uh, Asheville and Wilmington, right there in, uh, you know, the Raleigh carry area.
1: Yep. Tell us about it. Well, uh, a couple of things. You mentioned earlier that uh, I was a chef, so I was a chef for nearly 20 years, uh, mm. and I know that that doesn't seem to naturally lend itself into uh, being involved in financial services or being involved with technology startups, uh, but my I would say this is a family business for me uh, my father was in the industry for 35 years high level management in uh, different financial services companies three over the course of his his career so he was a he was a lifer and you know I've, I've understood a lot of these financial concepts before you know I knew how to write a five paragraph essay, <laughs> essay in school so um, you know I, I feel like I'm when I went into the business, it kind of stuck quite easily. I understood it. You know, I I studied it in in college as well before you know graduating and going going to culinary school and pursuing my dream of being the next Emeril Lagasse, which didn't happen. But you know, I had a nice successful career. But I also realized, okay, I've got a family. The the uh, hospitality industry is you know especially for an executive chef you're working you know 14 to 18 hours a day every day if you're lucky you get a day off in the week you maybe get a week's vacation you never get a night off never get a weekend off never get a holiday off and I realized I, I love my family more than <laughs> I love my career and I decided I needed to do something where um, you know I had that. Balance in life. So, you know, I talked to my father about, uh, you know, talked to me about financial services and made that career transition. And when I made it, I was living in, you know, in, in, right on the border of the Research Triangle Park. I, I literally live right across the street from the Cisco campus uh, mm. in, in Morrisville. And I started to realize that a lot of my clients. Are in high technology. They're either engineers or they own businesses in high technology. They're in the pharmaceutical industry. What you know, they're programmers. Whatever the case may be, uh, and so you know, I really love working with these people. What is it that is you know where I can t- kind of take advantage of the types of relationships that I built? Uh, with people in the, in this in the high technology industry and utilize my geography and I said well what about startup companies right because there's a ton of companies that are going from you know zero to 7 8 10 figure companies in this area and how can I how can I help those businesses in the startup phase you know and are there is there anybody in financial services that are Focusing on their specific needs and looking around, I found, you know, most people in my industry, they maybe do a handful of key person policies or buy-sell arrangements in the course of their entire career. Vast majority don't do really any. So that, and that's just generally for businesses. Now, take it more specifically to startups who's, who's focusing on their specific needs and understand and understand what they need to have in order to satisfy their requirements. I, I couldn't find anybody that was working on that sort of stuff. And so I said, well, how do, how do I help these people? Because I know people that are starting up businesses and I know they need what it is that I do. So I found myself getting involved with 1 million cups because I don't know if you know much about One Million Cups. One Million Cups is a local entrepreneurial ecosystem building organization um, that is an arm, like a local arm of the Kauffman Foundation. Now, the Kauffman Foundation is a $4 billion endowment for the promotion of economic development through entrepreneurship. And there's about 160 plus of these 1 million cups communities nationwide, 1 million cups, meaning the the idea behind that is businesses are built over a million cups of coffee. So it's a, Hmm. it's relationship based, it's ecosystem building based. It's, it's getting company founders in touch with resources that they would, they would not otherwise know about or have and helping these companies find what it is that they need to be successful. Like the idea is, we, as a community, the 1 million cups community at, are asking, what can we do to help you, the founder? Uh, so, we have one to two presenters every week. They do a six minute presentation. They've followed up by about 20 minutes of question and answer where they get the feedback that they're looking for or hoping to look for. Maybe they don't get the feedback they were looking for, but they get the feedback that they need. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I find myself getting involved in that, showing up. Um, to be part of the community, and then uh, as I became part of the community, I became part of the organizing team, and then eventually became uh, at, got asked to be the lead organizer and kind of take over for one of you know our longtime lead organizer who did a tremendous job building up uh, that community. But in getting involved in that, I really, really was able to get a deep dive into what was concerning. Uh, founders of startup companies seeing, you know, where their focus was and seeing where their focus wasn't too. And understanding, you know, from my perspective, the risk management perspective, what they were, you know, what they weren't really uh, focusing on and trying to educate at that point, you know, having conversations and that education, and that's kind of, you know, helped, make me that go-to person for you know business attorneys that focus on the startup space and you know being referred by those those folks and you know fractional cfos that work with startup companies and other types of attorneys maybe like a you know um uh An intellectual property attorney, trademark attorneys, those sorts of things. I I do get a lot of uh, client referrals from those individuals that are working with startup companies because they know I'm, I'm, you know, I know, I know how to deal with with these particular issues.
0: Dominic, is there any restriction on the area that you can operate in? Like, if somebody's listening in California or Colorado, can they just pick up the phone and, and call you and say, Look, I know you're in North Carolina. Can you handle this stuff for me? Or does it have to be state to state or what?
1: So uh, insurance licenses are state to state. Now, fortunately, uh, there is a um, there is state to state reciprocity as far as granting uh, non-resident licenses. So even if I'm not licensed in your particular state and you wanna have a conversation about some of these topics, and uh, it, it, it would take me a, you know, maybe a day or two to have, um, my license in that particular, in, in that state, uh, we can have conversations about general topics, but if you wanted to actually like solidify business, then licenses are required, but I like to always have that prior to having the conversation. So, you know, it, it's, it's really not an issue though. I can cool. operate anywhere in the country, just give 48 hours. <laughs> All right. And I'm I'm licensed in 13 different states right now
0: already. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I just wanted to make that super clear for, for our listeners and viewers. Uh, You can reach out to Dominic. This has been Dominic Battistella. He's a New York uh, life insurance licensed agent. I got to make sure I get my terminology right here and financial services professional in the RTP area. Thanks for doing this. Um, Where, where where's the best place for those who are listening. They can't see all that info that's on the screen. Um, What's the best way to connect with you?
1: Well, I mean, the, the easiest way to connect with me is to find uh, my LinkedIn page. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time communicating with folks there, um, but you can give me a call um, and we'll leave the, you'll have notes on this, yeah. right? Yeah. You can give me a call or send me an email and uh, just look at the uh, look to Jason's website for that information. Um, But yeah, LinkedIn is usually the easiest place to find me.
0: Very cool. Well, Dominic, I appreciate it. This has been quite educational. I hope we've changed the minds or or given a little focus of something different to space startup founders who might not have been thinking about this stuff. Appreciate you doing this.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate it.
0: Hey, this is Jason Cannigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com msb, that's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about, and uh, drop in your email address there and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists, and so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel, that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, uh, lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks